Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dispatches from the Front. We are no longer just a Band of Brothers podcast. Uh, if you've been listening to us for the last 10 episodes, you had a, what I think is a pretty darn good review of all the episodes of Band of Brothers, and this is now our first episode, which is not about Band of Brothers, because, well, we finished the series. What? I thought we were going back through in reverse order now. I watched the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're actually we're actually going to watch all of the episodes backwards, uh, up, up to, like, even the first episode, and watch them go up in the air with the parachutes. It's <laughs> going to be an amazing defiance of physics. And, and... Uh, we'll see Captain Sobel do high ho silver in reverse, which I look forward to. Yeah, <laughs> with his stylish coat. <laughs> so, I'm Tim. This is Tom. Tom, how are you tonight? I'm wonderful. I actually did watch the right movie for this one, so that feels like an accomplishment, all things considered, with a five month old in the house. Yeah, it's uh, for folks that hopefully you have watched Saving Private Ryan. So we're encouraging folks, just like we did with the Band of Brothers series, to uh, before you listen to us, go out and, and see these movies, uh, find them. Maybe you have them on disc. Maybe you can find them on a streaming service uh, or some other means out there. Saving Private Ryan is just a fantastic movie. I know they run it on, like, you know, TNT once in a while, which is fine, but there's a lot of stuff that they have to edit out when they put a movie like this into, uh, you know, kind of a regular basic cable type of channel. You won't find out what FUBAR actually means because they cut it. That's true. (laughs) You you can only find it out here if TNT is your source for Saving Private Ryan. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah, this is um, th- this is a, a brutal movie. It's you know absolutely rated R, and for so many reasons. Yeah, everything is appropriate for what they say and do and cover. Uh, it, it's insanely realistic. This movie has been lauded by many many critics and veterans. For its realism, in particular, and I mean, and really through through much of the movie, and of course, you know, just like anything Hollywood, there's some inaccuracies here and there, but so much of this has a lot of grittiness and realism in it, and that first 20 or so minutes of the movie is just absolutely brutal. It was right on the cusp of being rated NC-17. I mean, you're talking... A scene or two had Hanks, or excuse me, had Spielberg refused to cut it, um, the MPAA would have bumped it up to the NC-17 rating, which would have just, like, probably devastated it at the box <clears throat> office. It was actually banned in at least one country. I, I, I think it was India. Uh, they refused to allow it initially, uh, unless Spielberg would cut some of the the scenes. He mm-hmm. obviously refused. And there was a back and forth, and eventually it was allowed in its its uncut form. And that says a lot about the respect that folks had for it, I think, once they actually saw the movie and realized that, you know what, this isn't... First of all, it's a, it's a good story. This isn't just brutal warfare for the sake of brutal warfare. Uh, it's, it's a meaningful story, 
And what was done is a representation of reality and, and history. And, and it's, it, it's kind of hard to call warfare a movie on, on war being tastefully done, but this is done in a way where it is very respectful and they don't pull any punches with it. No. And I, I first saw this movie, so it came out in 98, which is crazy. We're, we're at that cut. So it's 20 years old this year. Yeah. Which is insane. And we're, you, you made the comment about folks who haven't seen it. I think for a while it was a cultural institution. I mean, there was nobody that you would run into that really hadn't seen the movie, but now we've hit that point where it's, uh, unless you own it, I don't know that it's on any streaming services and, and it's like you said, not on TV that often. So it's fallen back into that category of one that a lot of people have to go back and, and actually make the time to watch. I first saw it in the theater when I was 13 and my dad gave me a pretty stern warning. He he had no idea what was coming. He had, I think read about the approach and the graphicness, but you know, Thought, thought that I was old enough, I guess, to, to be exposed to it. But I don't know that there had been a war movie quite like this. Certainly you had war movies with gore in it, Full Metal Jacket, Platoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, this wasn't the first move, war movie to be gory by any measure. But I think the scale of this movie and whatnot was just unlike anything else. And I remember I bought my popcorn and my dad, my dad didn't buy anything. He is always like a popcorn and drink at the movies guy. And he didn't buy anything. <laughs> and I was like, oh, are you not hungry? You're not feeling well? And he's like, I think you might regret that decision early in the yeah. movie. And I was like, whatever. I know everything. <laughs> and I got sick. I got, I got queasy after the first 30 minutes. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, this Certainly, the, I, I think this set the tone for war movies for the next, certainly the next decade. And I think it, it has an influence on war movies and, and TV series to this day. Um, but it's unlike any, it was unlike anything at the time. Yeah. And it, this is, this is a movie that, well, certainly it's in the genre of, of war movies. There are a handful of movies through history that can be called epic. These are larger than life pictures and, you know, there's historic movies, things like Gone with the Wind are regarded as epics. Saving Private Ryan is one of those movies that's regarded as an epic just because of how grandiose the movie is. Even though it really only focuses on a handful of people, the movie itself is much bigger than just the handful of people that they're focusing on. And it's such a... Uh, it, it, an important time in history, even though much of the movie is the actual story, the, the, the driving story of the movie is roughly based on a, a, an actual event, but not really intended to be historically accurate uh, in, in terms of, of the, the main plot driver of this. Uh, the movie itself is also almost three hours long. Yeah. And you don't realize that when you're watching it, because it is just, it's constant. Like it's constantly there. And, and, you know, like any good movie, it has its, 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 uh, up tempos and its down tempos, but the down tempos are like, they're still very interesting. And they are like just barely breathers because you're, you're recovering from what just happened and you're waiting for the next thing to happen. And that pace, it keeps a, a really great pace with it. So 
even the scene where they I, you can tell this like it's intentionally played out like this in the movie because even the scene where they take shelter in the church Captain Miller puts a fine point on exactly how short this is that that peaceful period is going to be he's like we're going to hold up for three hours here yeah <laughs> And you're like, in movie time, that's like one minute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and that really underscores that, hey, look, they're, they're in a, a very, very active war zone. I mean, they just invaded the enemy's territory. They are on a mission that they know is very timely. There's there's no time to really get some legit R and R it's it's you, you catch whatever sleep you're going to get and you, you get back on the road. So before we do jump into the plot, uh, just a little bit of, of some of the background stuff here. Uh, as you mentioned, the, the movie was released in July of 1998. This is done by DreamWorks pictures, Paramount pictures and Amblin, Enter- Amblin entertainment. Uh, of course, a lot of folks know that Amblin entertainment, if you remember it, you, you see the, their little logo pop up at the beginning of, of movies. Uh, and it is um, Elliot and E.T. pedaling across the moon. Uh, so that is Steven Spielberg's company. He was the uh, he, he was the director of this. It was written by Robert Rodap, uh, who I looked up. His name didn't really jump out to me. He's got a pretty good portfolio of, of things. Uh, he did the Falling Skies series on TNT which I think ended a couple years ago, but it went several seasons. It was like a uh, post-apocalyptic alien invasion type of series, uh, which, which I was very much into. I was, I was pretty entertained by it. Uh, he was uh, not only the writer, but also the creator and, and producer of that series. He wrote uh, The Patriot with Mel Gibson, the Revolutionary War uh, movie, which uh, is another kind of larger-than-life type of, of movie. Uh, and for those of you who are Marvel fans, he also wrote Thor The Dark World, uh, which is one of the lowest rated MCU <laughs> movies out there. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he does have have some good stuff under his belt. Uh, the score was done by John Williams, which, you know, is probably not a big surprise to folks. Uh, John Williams does just some absolutely incredible work and he excels when he has these these big movies to work with. One of my favorite stories about Williams and just the body of work that he has was uh, from J.J. Abrams when he was working on the initial portion of the score for uh, The Force Awakens. He he got called over to John Williams' house to sort of discuss things, and John Williams pulls out this big book, um, and it was all of his handwritten music for all of these films. I mean, it was like a, a wow. the, the Grail Diary from Indiana Jones. And so J.J. Just describes opening this thing, and he's like, there's Jurassic Park, there's Saving Private <laughs> Ryan, just wow. as if it's – and this is just a portfolio. And John Williams is like the coolest cat in town. Like, it's it's no big deal. Yep, I just, you know, cranked that one out in an hour, you know, after I yeah. slammed down a PBJ. <laughs> Yeah, the but, scores to like some of the most notable films in history. That's it's amazing. Yeah, and I all all you need to hear, you could just uh, play some of the main themes from this movie, and it it'll evoke imagery from D Day. It's just it's a very very powerful score, and yeah. it doesn't get in the way of the movie either. No, it does not. It's very subtle and and 
you don't notice it as much because, like I said, the movie is just like constantly on. And you're just so enamored with the story and the characters and the environment that they're in and all that. It's it's tough. Um, so, Tom, like we usually do, I'm going to ask you to kind of read a plot summary here. And I have to admit, when I was putting this plot summary together, it's funny because this is probably the shortest plot summary I've written of anything we've done on uh, Dispatches from the Front. And it just feels like, so, okay, this is almost three hours. Most of the Band of Brothers episodes were like an hour, hour and change. And some of those plot summaries were like multiple paragraphs. For this one, it was like, either I write something that's really, really short or give me the script. <laughs> because it was like, I if I go into detail on anything, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, and we're obviously going to talk about a lot of the plot points in this. So, um, Tom, if if, if uh, you'd like to cover the plot summary for us, that would be fantastic. Yeah. So this movie is about World War II. In, in case uh, anybody was mistaken, <laughs> we open right out of the gate after a, a brief couple establishing scenes with who will learn to be Private Ryan, an, an older Private Ryan, uh, visiting mm-hmm. the Normandy cemetery but it opens with the allied invasion of normandy on june 6 1944 members of the second rangers under captain miller fight ashore to secure a critical beachhead amidst the invasion two brothers are killed in action while a third brother is killed in new guinea uh, across the world their mother is to receive all three death notices on the same day informed of the situation u.s army chief of staff general george marshall orders a rescue operation to find uh, and bring home the fourth brother, Private James Francis Ryan. That's a very important distinction. It is. (laughs) Not just any F. A member of the 101st Airborne and bring him home back to his mother. That's nice and concise. And I would have read the whole (laughs) script. That boils it down. Yeah, yeah. So we certainly have some uh, really notable cast members here. We've we've mentioned uh, Captain Miller, who is uh, really the the main central character to this. Uh, despite the the movie being named after Private James Francis Ryan, we really don't see him until like the third act. Uh, so the the central character here is Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks. This is actually the first film that Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg ever worked together on. That's amazing. It is considering both of their careers. Uh, and, and this, as we've mentioned in, in previous episodes, was really their precursor to getting into Band of Brothers and producing that series. So that's why we felt it to be so appropriate to do Saving Private Ryan as our first uh, non-Band of Brothers episode. But apparently, I don't know how close this this actually came, but both Harrison Ford and Mel Gibson were considered for the role of Captain Miller. And I have a very, very hard time picturing either of them as iconic as they are and as great a job as I'm sure they would have done uh, in this role. Uh, Mel Gibson, a little less so. I think if you've seen We Were Soldiers, oh, yeah. uh, you, you could, I mean, it, it, he could play any role. But I, I think Harrison Ford would have been a little odd. Yeah. They, they yeah. hit a pitch perfect with Hank. Oh, I totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, Tom Sizemore had a pretty prominent role in this, uh, playing Sergeant Horvath. Uh, 
He's the NCO who is Captain Miller's right-hand man, uh, some, oftentimes his enforcer with the guys, and uh, obviously real knowledgeable. And, and you could see that they had a, a good kinship of sorts between the, between the two of them. Uh, we had a very early uh, appearance of Vin Diesel. This was really his first big movie. He had done a couple of like independent films before this. Nothing really big, nothing groundbreaking. And this movie, it, it's it's also very apparent that he wasn't a big star going into this movie because they killed him off pretty early. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he, he didn't last too long in this. Uh, Matt Damon plays the uh, the title character of, of Private Ryan. Uh, and Matt Damon actually, when he was cast for this, he was not a big A-list actor. Uh, but while they were shooting this, in that period of time, Goodwill Hunting had released. And all of a sudden, Matt Damon is now this <laughs> big-time character. Again, you had an actor who was not big going into this movie. And even though he has the title role, he was really relegated to just the third act of the film. Uh, so not a not a huge role. They actually kept him to to help, I, I guess, build the authenticity of some of the division between him and the other men under Miller's command. They did like a really intense week long boot camp for mm-hmm. for most of the cast. The only two people that were accepted out of that requirement were Hanks uh, and uh, Matt Damon. Matt Damon mm-hmm. was intentionally accepted out of it so that the other folks would resent him. And that that would show through more <laughs> on screen. I think it, I think and it, it did. It did. Yeah, yeah. It absolutely. I mean, he was very much an outsider uh, in his in in his his on screen stuff. So that was pretty apparent. Uh, we had Ted Danson of of Cheers fame, and this was really the most significant thing that Dan, uh, Ted Danson had done in like ten years since since mm-hmm. Cheers had closed out. Uh, Paul Giamatti. I love Paul Giamatti in this. I do too, and and he's uh, his time in this is very brief as well. But he has a great role. He has a really good role. Uh, we see a, an early Nathan Fillion playing. <laughs> you, you know, in in for those of you who are Star Wars fans, we there's there's a a, a character, a very popular character called Wedge Antilles, and uh, there there is in in one of the films also someone who is kind of supposed to be this character, but isn't, he's played by a completely different actor. And uh, in, in, in the star Wars uh, kind of fan world, we refer to that person as fake wedge. <laughs> Nathan Fillion basically plays fake private Ryan. Um, he, he is private Ryan. He's just not James Francis Ryan. So he, he kind of ends up being a, a bit of a detractor uh, for for a bit as they think they have found uh, Private Ryan. And, and while they have, it's not the right one. I just love when he's running by. Like, nobody's even interacted with him yet. And Ryben is like, told you he was an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we also see briefly in here Brian Cranston, who... He had done some TV work here and there. Um, I mean, he's he had been in, in his career for quite a while. He's He's been an actor uh, since like the early 80s. 
but you know, we saw him in um um I think he was what the dentist in in Seinfeld. So he yeah. kind of had that that sometimes recurring role there, but nothing really big until this came up. So this was but but his role in this was actually very small. Had Malcolm in the Middle started at this point or was it I think Malcolm in the Middle came later. Yeah. Yeah, that came after this. Uh in fact, his role was so small, he's unnamed. Um, he's just his his he's credited as War Department Colonel. They didn't even give him two arms to work with. <laughs> no, he only had one and a half. That was that was it. He was uh, yeah he was he was an amputee in that position. So, ah, uh, all right. So Tom, you mentioned we we kick off truly. I mean the 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 real power of of this thing kicks off with the Normandy invasion. Specifically, the landing here at Omaha Beach and narrowing this down even further. And you hear kind of some of this language. You hear Hanks reference some of this. So within Omaha Beach, obviously, they, when they were planning this out, they had carved out different sectors within that beachhead area. 17 and, of them. Which is significant. And this one particularly is called Sector Dog Green. Yeah, and actually, the I, we could do an entire podcast just on the history of D-Day and or, or just yeah. the history of <laughs> of Omaha Beach itself. Um, I think Omaha and Utah are probably the two most well known, maybe followed yeah. by by uh, Sword. Mm-hmm. Um, but you actually had seventeen sectors with these code names, uh, some of which you, you had an able on there, you know, on one end. And mm-hmm. so not all of them got the same amount of action or attention. Uh, Omaha and Utah were where the bulk of the U.S. forces landed and where some of the heaviest fighting was. And then actually mm-hmm. on uh, Omaha Beach in particular, you had it subdivided, as you just said, into 10 subsectors, if you will. And that's where Dog Green is one of those subsectors. So Cap Miller and his men are, are tasked with uh, taking and clearing one of those subsectors. Yep. Uh, and I actually, when I was putting together the show notes here, pulled up, uh, if, if you want to familiarize yourself a little bit more, of course, you can find maps of, of all this stuff out there. So uh, you can pull up, uh, there's a, actually a, a website called dday.org. And they have some terrific resources on here. And you can see they have a kind of the big uh, picture map of this where you see uh, General Bradley, uh, the 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 uh, U.S. commander in this assault with the First Army going after Utah and Omaha Beach, and then you have General Dempsey, who was the British commander, doing Sword and Juno and Gold. And uh, there's another map that I found uh, actually off of the uh, the Army website in in their their history portion which breaks down, I wanted to see where Dog Green was. And uh, so you can look up the sectors of Omaha Beach and you get this great topographical map. They show some different features in here. You see where the sectors are broken up and and pretty accurate to the, well, the map wouldn't be accurate to the movie. The movie would be accurate to the map. <laughs> you see kind of that that little break in the, in the cliff, uh, in the cliff wall where... Captain Miller leads his forces up through there as they basically make that penetration 
into uh, in, into the the German defenses, just over on on the very edge of Dog Green, right next to Charlie. So it's um, you know there's there's a lot of historical significance to this, and and you can, I mean it's it's really heartbreaking this assault when it opens up. I mean there are men who literally did not even get off of the landy craft before getting shot and killed for reference. And we, I, I think just like the band of brothers podcast, uh, we won't uh, go down the rabbit hole too far of a history lesson, but the uh, Germans had really built up this mm. wall of defenses. I mean, it was, it was very reminiscent of, of something you would have seen out of world war one or whatnot, but, yeah, that's where you see those pillbox, those concrete hardened bunkers. Um, mm-hmm. It it probably went against conventional thinking, like you know, why would you make fixed defenses like this? But there's a reason why they called it Fortress Europe, mm-hmm. and part of it was that the the Germans had really spent a lot of effort and manpower and resources into trying to make this impenetrable. And if if you've never looked at the map of of France and England just to orient you that probably the the closest point if you look at at the map between England and France up on the north end of France is uh Calais which mm-hmm. is right southwest of Dunkirk which we'll probably do a podcast oh, yeah. on yeah. Dunkirk down that's, the line That's where the English Channel goes through that's the closest point between Great Britain and the rest of Europe Yeah and so there was a, a, the, the Germans knew that Allied forces were going to invade France, and then the only real question was when and where. Yeah. And conventional thinking was that the Allies would would try to make this as easy as possible and and cross at the most narrow point. And the the subject of the uh, sort of back and forth and deception games that went into planning and and tricking the Germans. Yeah. about where we were going to land is absolutely fascinating because yeah. of the scale of this operation. But if you continue down the coastline, down uh, south of Calais, that, that close point, you'll see this like point that juts out from the coast of France. It almost comes to a point. And sort of at the, the right side or the, the easterly base of that uh, little point is Omaha Beach, right mm-hmm. nestled in there. And so I, I encourage you just to get a sense of where things were because I, you know, my European geography isn't fantastic, <laughs> but I think it puts into perspective what was going on here, the amount of space through the channel that they had to cross. Mm-hmm. And, and then you get a sense of uh, where they're fighting inland. And, and yeah. so Omaha is probably a little, uh, a little North Northwest of Paris. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of through a variety of other movies that we talk about, we'll be covering little parts of this because there's so many really great world war two films that touch on D day in some way, shape or form. And so we'll, we'll get little bits and pieces of it. And um, yeah, I, I, there were so many folks under, you know, in the Nazi leadership that expected that crossing to happen at Calais but particularly uh, Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, he strongly felt that this was the area that the Allies were going to cross. And so he had convinced Hitler of that. 
uh, or at least convinced Hitler to let him fortify uh, this particular area. And as it turns out, he was right. And, uh, you know, I mean, he set them up to put up a heck of a fight. And you can just see in this movie the sheer number of soldiers that are getting thrown at this beach. And quite literally, the survivors who just simply make it off the landing craft are wading through the bodies of other soldiers just to get to the beach. And that's not even advancing through the beach. Uh, it's, it's, it was incredibly well fortified. It was absolutely brutal. And, and I, it probably would have held had there not been as many soldiers that were thrown at it and had the allies not been so determined to, to make this landing and to get that effort to truly bring the fight to Hitler because they really, they, they hadn't been able to truly penetrate uh, Europe before this. So this was just insanely significant. Um, they, they needed to make this happen. Yeah. And I, uh, to your point about the, the, jeopardy that this entire operation was in even amongst the you you see it in the scene i mean as captain miller finally makes it up to the sand dune they're going around and he keeps tapping the radio man to say you know first wave ineffective uh dog green sector is not clear Mm -hmm. uh things are looking pretty dire at that point and to connect back to the Band of Brothers series, you saw there that there was a, another part of the operation was this massive airborne jump, which was supposed to disrupt German forces, disrupt German reinforcements, uh, attack their artillery points, which were put in in support of those fortified coastal positions. And while that ultimately ended up a success, the initial drops were totally foobar and we'll, yeah. we'll define foobar later but and that becomes a central point of this the movie is that the whole reason they can't find uh private ryan is because the the jumps went all to hell you saw yeah. it played out in band of brothers but um the the nature of those drops the chaos really put that portion of the operation in jeopardy and and put more of a burden on the troops that were landing because they didn't have the the support that they were expecting hadn't quite materialized. And that includes even the, uh, the longstanding bombardment. I mean, the, the coastal bombardment that had happened really hadn't softened things up. Right. Uh, like it probably should have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, while, while this was happening, I mean, again, kind of going back into real life, while these forces were, were unloading from, these landing crafts, there were naval ships back behind them hitting the German lines uh, with with artillery. And the Germans were still holding very, very strong through this whole thing. Yeah. It, it was, uh, yeah, it was just, just absolutely crazy. And I mean, you saw, this is really probably the movie at its most brutal. I mean, you, you are... Seeing people just taking rounds to the chest, rounds to the head, getting limbs blown off. You you see a situation where a medic has a small success and manages to stop the bleeding on a soldier who was hit, only to then have that soldier take a round to the head. 
Yeah, I, that's one of the most poignant scenes in that entire thing. Because I think it's, um, I'm trying to think, uh, remember what his name was. Uh, it's Wade? our. It, say again. Wade. Yeah, it's. I think Wade is helping, and he he ends up throwing his helmet down, and he's like, yeah. you know, give us a fucking chance. Yep. Why don't you? And you think about that. The odds that these soldiers are facing. Not only are they they running into interlocking fields of fire from fortified positions, all with you know, those MG42 machine guns that we talked about quite a bit in Band mm-hmm. of Brothers. Just the the. I mean, those things are absolute monsters. But they're when you're trying to return fire, you're returning fire on targets that you can't quite aim at. I mean, you know, right. you try hitting a German soldier from an elevated fortified position like that, or even the soldiers yeah. that in that uh, sandbag bunker that they mm-hmm. attack once they punch through the wall. What didn't dawn on me probably the first couple times that I watched this movie was that you see Captain Miller send four or five guys out a couple times, just two fire teams in succession <clears throat> to try to get some fire on that machine gun nest and destroy it. And you see Caparzo and a couple of the other guys put covering fire on them. Uh, what didn't dawn on me the first few times that I watched it was that those guys all die. And mm. and you hear uh, Sergeant Horvath, he's like, it's a goddamn firing squad. Mm-hmm. And before Captain Miller sends the second team in, he says, why don't you hand them blindfolds? Mm, yeah you know they're they're going right into the firing squad and then finally they send <laughs> trusty private jackson forward um, yeah so with his, I, uh, yeah, I mean, his sniper rifle guided by the hand of god and uh <laughs> <laughs> you know which of course i mean there's some incredible irony with that to have someone who's incredibly religious and he's uh you know one of the deadliest snipers out there and you know before every shot he takes he he's sends a prayer up to God to uh, to guide his hand and, and help him dole out some righteousness. And I have a, a story that's going to reveal my a personal military story that's very brief, but will reveal the impact that this movie had on me, but also my extreme corniness as a young soldier. When I was in basic training, this was 03, so uh, Saving Private Ryan had become probably one of my absolute favorite films of all time. But I'm 18 years old, I'm in basic training, and uh, for a three-week block in the middle of basic training, you're in basic rifle marksmanship. Culminates with uh, live fire exercises on the range where your goal is to knock down these targets that pop up. Mm-hmm. Pretty simple. I really liked Private Jackson's character The fr- <laughs> you know, as a, a young guy. You know, like, snipers tend to be popular, right? Mm-hmm. And so as I was on the range, sitting in the foxhole as as targets would get ready to pop up, I would sit there and say his lines like that. You know, he, he says those prayers <laughs> before he fires each yes. round and in true corny, like young soldier fashion, I, I sat there and pretended like I was <clears throat> private Jackson and would say a little prayer as I pulled the trigger. I don't think I've ever told anybody that story, but I thought I was so cool at the time. And now you've told everyone up to and including it's, Tom Hanks, who, as we all know, listens to our podcast. He's the number one listener. Yeah, so <laughs> my, my secret's out there. Private Harper was real corny, but he did like saving Private Ryan a lot. Yeah, yeah. So we we have this, uh, again, I mean, like this first 20 minutes is, there's so many things that we could mention about it, but it's something, 
you have to like sit and watch and experience because it's that in and of itself is just this immersive event. They then jump to after the invasion, there's a brief bit. uh, They kind of go to the war department in Washington and you have what's essentially this large secretary pool of, of, uh, of women who are typing up these letters that are going to be going out to family members about their sons and their husbands who have been killed in action. And oddly enough, uh, which was always one of those things that struck me, like this one woman out of (laughs) all the people there who are typing these letters and all the thousands of soldiers who were killed, this one woman had apparently come across all three of these brothers' uh, death notices. And so you said they kind of do these little vignettes where it gets moved up the chain of command and eventually makes its way up to General Marshall, who makes the decision of we, we need to go find this fourth brother and get him back to his mother. So she's not losing all of her sons and uh, has a little bit of a, of a, of a speech, a, a monologue from a letter which was written by President Lincoln, you know, kind of ties the whole thing up in a, in a bit of a, a dramatic but still very meaningful type of, of, of package here and kind of shows that, hey, look, there's there's precedent for this. You get an odd, this is one of those, it's it's not readily apparent when you watch the movie unless you're you're trying to nitpick stuff, but, you know, it is historical fiction and they have to take some liberties here, but when you look at the timing, that is like the most rapid death notice that I think has ever been received, you know, especially for that day and age. She, Mrs., poor Mrs. Ryan probably got those letters, like, on D-Day plus two, so like June 8th. Um, which is a hell of an efficient system for 1944 U.S. Army. But... I have to imagine it's not that fast now. <laughs> no, I, I think yeah, they they, they take a li- little liberty there. But actually, Marissa, my wife's the one that pointed that out to me last night. She's like, "Wait a minute, how long has it been since D-Day?" And I was like, "I don't know." <laughs> and she she noticed something else, and then she's like, "I think it's been like a day or two. How the hell are they that fast?" And I was like, "Don't you question the movie?" Yeah, you don't point out plot holes to me. <laughs> so the these orders uh, from you know tr- truly the highest ranks end up making their way back down the pecking order, and uh, when Captain Miller is briefing his lieutenant colonel after they have you know, penetrated Normandy and they've kind of set up a, a field headquarters of sorts. And they're talking about different areas and, and things that have happened there. The Lieutenant Colonel comes back and says, Hey, I, I have another thing for you. And you really get the sense that Captain Miller is kind of the, he's the go-to guy for the difficult missions and he's highly trusted and, and all that. So the, the Colonel, you know, basically briefs him on the situation and says, you know, go out, handpick your squad, and go find this guy. And they bring up the same thing that you mentioned before, that sure, 
These paratroopers came down. None of them came down where they were supposed to. They're scattered all over the place. We know there were very heavy casualties, so he might not even still be alive. But these are the orders, and we're going to go do it. I love his line that it's like trying to find a needle on a stack of needles. Yeah. <laughs> to this day, I still steal that phrase regularly. Yeah. It's just, it so perfectly puts a point on what they're being asked to do. And this connects to a larger theme that runs throughout the entire movie, this theme of the responsibility of duty, following orders, the the, the balance there with overall risk. And it comes up again and again. Oftentimes, Private Ryben is the one to, is the catalyst to mm-hmm. bitch and moan about it and point it out to everybody. But uh, why is one private's life more important or, or important enough to risk the lives of, of eight others. Yeah. Um, or why is it any mission for that matter um, worth the lives of folks? And this, this connects right in with Captain Miller's character and this struggle that he has. Cause you see it when he deals with that Lieutenant Colonel Dennis Farina uh, as, as he's receiving his mission, he's briefing the, the Colonel on some, uh, some post, landing missions and and they ran mm-hmm. into a big minefield and he he lost some men and clearly the the he keeps a little ledger in his pocket mm-hmm. and the loss of men is very personal to him you saw yep. that with in band of brothers with captain winters but this is something yep. that that really hits home with him and and it builds throughout the entire movie and you hear captain miller later in the the movie talk about this and what he says is look i i'd like to think that or I have to think that every time I lose a man, I've saved two or four or yeah. 10. Mm-hmm. And that's how I deal with it. Yeah. That's how he's able to justify it in his mind and, and to process it and get through all of it. And, and despite that, we see uh, actually, I think the opening shot of the invasion is Miller's hand shaking. Mm hmm when they're on the landing yeah. craft and, and this is another kind of recurring thing that we see throughout the movie, truly right up to the very end of, of, you know, when they're at, at, at the end of the movie, when he takes out his pistol and he's shooting at the tiger, this is very clearly something that is related to stress, PTSD, you know, any number of things that at the time was not very well diagnosed. And, I mean, now, and, you know, Tom, you can probably speak better to this, would probably get someone pulled off the line. Yeah. I think it, in particular, the, Cap Miller is like a fascinating kid. That The Army mm. still uses him. I, I remember using him as a leadership study mm. when I was in ROTC, learning to become an officer. And you see different sides of, of him. On one hand, you see him as this this model officer whose demeanor and his interaction with the soldiers is uh, textbook, right? That's mm. what you want out of an officer. And the, the, I can think of no better scene than initially early on in their patrol when uh, Ryben is questioning the entire mission uh, mm-hmm. in his in the way only somebody from Brooklyn can. Oh, it's and fantastic. <laughs> it's such a great scene. And he's he's just like, look, I got a mother. Captain, you got a mother. Okay, well, maybe you don't have a mother. But <laughs> we all got mothers. So, like, what's what's the big deal here? And and yeah. Miller, 
among other points, makes the point that, look, I don't, I don't complain to you, Ryben. Complaints go uphill. They don't go downhill. You complain to, uh, you know, Sergeant Horvath. Sergeant Horvath complains to me. I complain up to my superiors. Um, and that's really the model of, you know, what you'd expect from an officer. He doesn't yeah. really break character, break that character until he does. And mm-hmm. we'll talk about the machine gun assault uh, in a little bit, but you see the flip side of him when he starts to lose it. And I, I would say the same thing for w- when they're at the uh, sort of field hospital, I guess you could call it going through dog tags and, mm. and he, he sort of loses it and starts to yell at all the airborne soldiers walking through. He grabs like that French couple mm-hmm. and starts to try to speak French just out of pure desperation. Yeah. And yeah, you, you see the, those sort of adverse effects of, just to stress and this is over like a week period i mean you think about that you see on his gravestone he died on june 14th so d-day plus eight i guess yeah and i think about enduring that amount of crap over (laughs) the course of a work week right yeah with only a few hours of sleep (laughs) yeah yeah um and so going back to we were talking about the the um, theme of following orders and, and whatnot. You brought up earlier that scene with Caparzo, how Vin Diesel doesn't make it very far. Yeah. And I, we, I don't know what, what kind of in, impact did that scene have on you? Well, you know, it really, it shows there, it, it was gut wrenching because I mean, they're truly, this is not a situation where, as we see in many movies, someone takes a bullet and they immediately die. Um, we, we know that very oftentimes that doesn't happen. And so uh, Caparzo gets shot. He gets hit by a sniper and he's kind of out in the open and it's raining. It's wet. You see his blood kind of flowing out into the water that he's sitting in, 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 in the mud. And he he desperately needs help. He's calling for help. He's pleading for help. He's, he's crying. The guys want to help him. They want to do something, but they know if they expose themselves, the sniper's going to hit them. They know that if he moves too much, the sniper's going to know that he's still alive and the sniper's going to kill him. And at this point, they kind of, switch perspectives a little bit and, and they go up to the sniper who's up in the bell tower and the sniper knows that Carpazzo's still alive. He knows he's dying. And at that point he's basically waiting for another one of these soldiers to go out and get him so he can shoot him. He's, he's using him as, as, as bait. Yeah. He intentionally, he could have easily shot him right in the head and killed him from his position. Yeah. Jackson makes the comment, I wouldn't venture out there, boys. This guy's got some talent. Yeah. Uh, he shot him where he shot him very intentionally to drop him and try mm-hmm. to lure somebody else out to get him uh, so that he could cause additional casualties. I think the worst part of it for me, I like watching it, especially now having a daughter, I guess, is when he realizes he's dying and he pulls that letter out and oh, he's, yeah. tra- he's talking to Wade. He's like, hey, this this is to my dad it's got blood on it and he's just desperately trying to hand it off yeah and you know what's so heart-wrenching i think about the whole scene is that how pointless the loss was they have this argument they they stumble upon those french civilians Mm -hmm. 
and Caparzo, out of the goodness of his heart, despite Captain Miller yelling in his ear, along with Sergeant Horvath, to leave her alone, grabs this little girl, and as he's trying to justify his actions, that's when he gets shot. Yeah. And, you know, you can see just Miller's disgust with the situation and over the senselessness. Not anger at Caparzo for putting himself in that situation, but just the senselessness of the loss. Yeah. Like, this is why we don't take children. Yeah. As he as he snatches his dog tag off, and I, you know, that's that's one of those scenes where I again it could be a case study in the importance of fallen orders. You know that that private mm-hmm. is substituting his judgment for Miller's, and you know, is the call to move past them and and leave them in a dangerous situation, um, you know, the the right thing to do morally? I you know I don't know. That's in a, a pretty gray area. But is it something that they were equipped to to do and to handle? No. And no. did it compromise their mission, or, or you know, was saving her something that would help further the mission that they had? No. Right. And that was Miller's point. As, especially as a as a small squad, and it's a we we see this then come up really again, but kind of from a different perspective with the the essentially the next obstacle that they encounter in the film, which is this uh, German bunker. It looks like there's a, a destroyed uh, a radar array that's there, but there's still an active machine gun nest. They find a bunch of other uh, uh, dead allied soldiers around there. And Miller makes the decision that, Hey, we're going to, we're going to lead an assault on this thing and we're going to take this thing out. And you then end up with this debate Amongst the men saying, hey, Captain, we, we can just, you know, take a little extra time and make a big circle around this thing. They won't see us. We're not bothering them. Taking up this, this machine gun nest is not part of our mission. And the captain insists, well, ultimately it is because our mission is to win this war. <laughs> so you kind of you see Miller like he justifies it. But and, and his reasoning is absolutely sound. But he also, he himself is straying from the objective that he's been trying to stick to. Yeah. And, you know, his his point is absolutely spot on. He's absolutely right. Hey, we could potentially save the lives of other soldiers who, you know, might stumble across this thing and, and, and get killed. And so they end up debating it. And, and really, in the end, it turns out that he was wrong. Yeah. And it's almost like this inverse, like this warped alternate version of the logic he used to try to justify leaving the civilians behind where he's all of a sudden justifying this significant risk for the folks that for the the fellow soldiers that doesn't have anything to do with the mission yeah at hand i think he realizes that that's why you see that breakdown there's that uh that great Mm. it's it's almost uncomfortable to watch as he's stripping off his gear to strip down for the assault and even sergeant horvath is like i don't know about this one and Horvath is like a steadfast defender of, of Captain Miller. Oh, yeah. You know, for all things. And even on this one, he's questioning him. And that's yeah. where you get the, you know, well, why don't you shut up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the other side. Of, we're talking about Captain Miller as a leader, a tactical genius on one hand, or, or a very astute tactical officer on one hand, uh, but really, like, has a slippage of the gears here. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think and, part of it was not that... 
Miller is very ego driven, but I, I think part of it was kind of a frustration of I'm constantly having my orders questioned and damn it. I said, we're going to do X. So we're going to do X. Stop fucking arguing with me. I I think like that's his whole point in this, that he, not that he had to be right, but it's like, Hey, I've got the bars. None of you do. We're going to do whatever the hell I say we're going to do. Yeah. Well, then you see the aftermath. You and I were talking about this before we recorded. Probably one of the most gut-wrenching scenes in the entire movie. Wade gets hit. Mm-hmm. For some reason, Wade, the, the unarmed medic, if you see, he's he doesn't carry a, a weapon in the movie as the, the squad's medic. But for some reason, he's up on the assault and gets hit just, right just in the totally stomach. wrong. No reason to send a medic up. Yeah. <laughs> you just, just don't do that. Or are they like running behind him like a human shield or something? I don't know. Yeah. But that's, you know, he's sitting there and it it's still one of the two scenes in this movie that's still to this day tough for me to watch. Even way more so than the initial landing. Because mm-hmm. he's sitting there, he knows he's injured badly, but he's directing his own medical care. Yeah. Which is just, there's a crazy perspective to it. And, you know, having been having been an EMT for 10 years, like I kind of put myself in that position when I'm watching that scene. And it's like, wow, yeah, that's crazy. It's like, you know, he's asking, he's asking the questions so they can do the assessment on him. And like, they don't know fully what they're doing. And so he's trying to comprehend this, even though he's in pain, he's shocky and he's bleeding out. And eventually he comes to recognize that he's going to die. You know, like he knows that's it. And then that's, you know, he asks for more morphine because he's just like, I, you know, uh, mentally he's processing. I'm hurting real bad. I'm dying. I just basically shoot me up with more morphine, knock me out and let me die like that. Yeah. You see like his liver goes and he's calling out for his mom. Like that, that just still gives me chills. Yeah. But, uh, I, and then that flows right into the capture of Steamboat Willie, as we'll call him. Yeah, and, and it's you know this uh, this character is is actually credited as Steamboat Willie, and it's because of of <laughs> one of his quotes. Yeah, that you know he in, in his his uh, rather broken English, but very clearly uh, the, the guy is a fan of of, of American pop culture. Um, <laughs> and this, you know, so this becomes another big point of conflict uh i mean the men start beating the shit out of steamboat willie and eventually miller gets up there and says nope search him for intel make him dig graves and he does that and you know we, we see this interesting thing happen because upham and, and we haven't really gotten too much into upham but early on as miller was picking his team uh like the top two guys who he needed as translators had both been KIA from the Normandy invasion. And so he comes across Upham, who was, uh, I, I mean, the, the, the guy ran a typewriter. That's all he did. And he said, hey, the last time I shot a weapon was was in basic. And I think what Miller asked him, he's like, did you hit a target? Did you fire the weapon <laughs> did in you basic fire training the weapon? Um <laughs> You know, I, and so Upham is, uh, he's, he's not a combat soldier. 
Absolutely. Um, and so like everything he does is very awkward in this. And he seems to be going through this whole experience initially with a measure of curiosity, kind of bordering on excitement that clearly annoys and pisses off everybody else. And then, you know, he kind of gets that shot of reality when Caparzo dies. And then when he sees this, I mean, he knows what the standing orders are. He knows the rules of engagement. You you have someone who gives themselves up. They're unarmed. They are a prisoner of war. You you can't beat them. You can't kill them. You can't do any of that. And and Miller obviously is is in this position himself as the commanding officer of this squad that, well, and we saw some of this in Band of Brothers where, you know, they were moving so fast and they didn't have a capacity to take POWs. And Miller, for as pissed off as he is at Steamboat for killing his medic, he can't justify killing the guy. And so they end up, you know, he blindfolds him and tells him, okay, you know, whatever, walk a thousand paces in this direction and 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 then you can take your blindfold off and he figures okay he's going to get picked up by one of our patrols who can actually process him um we end up finding out at the end of the movie that steamboat ends up as as some of the other guys here predicted joins up with uh another uh nazi division and you know lo and behold they end up uh they end up back together in, in conflict at the end of the movie and the cruelest irony is he's the one that fires the shot that downs Captain Miller. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's a really again, you could do a whole podcast on that scene yeah. breaking it down. But it's it's this tug of between duty and emotion there. And I think what's most fascinating about this scene is it it gets to a boiling point where Sergeant Horvath draws down on Ryben. Ryben is ready to walk off and you know, leave the entire squad. There's this confrontation, and I <laughs> like to. Horvath is about to fire on him, and Miller looks over, and they've got this like running thing amongst the squad where they've tried to figure out where Captain Miller is from, like what he did before the war, because mm-hmm. he's built up as this like epic character. I mean, at one point, uh, they say that he was made out of spare parts from dead GIs at OCS, <laughs> Officer Candidate School. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I mean, he's this larger thought, than like... Hey, this dude is straight-laced army, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, they they have a tremendous amount of respect for him, and, and yeah. from that standpoint, they have um, this sort of mythic idea of him, and mm-hmm. he comes forward and says, I'm a school teacher from north of Pittsburgh in a tiny town in Pennsylvania. I teach English composition. Mm-hmm. And it just throws everybody off. Like Horvath is like just staring at him. And I think Miller's point in doing that a is to throw everybody off kilter, but B to say like, look, I'm not like, I'm not the guy that you, I'm your leader, but I'm not the guy that you think I am at at the core. I'm a human being that did other stuff before all of this turned to shit. And you know, this, I, I make a call, right? You can second guess me if you want, but at the end of the day, I'm the officer. But it's, it really diffuses everything. Yeah. And, but you see in this confrontation, I mean, the insane, and, and I'm like in a good way, the loyalty that Horvath has for Miller. I yeah. mean, he just like, 
he stands right up to Rybin and I just simply does not falter. He's like, you're, you know, your, your captain just gave you an order. You, you know, you will fall in and they just, they get in. It was, it's just a fantastic, it's a really great conflict and it's so heated and you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, he pulls his pistol on him and, and Ryben's like, you're going to shoot me. Go ahead. Fucking shoot me. You know, if, if, if that's what you think you're going to do, I think this is FUBAR. I'm going to walk off. And it's just, yeah, it's just it's such an incredible heated situation. And Miller's just so calm. He's just standing in back and just listening to it happen. And, and of course, um, Upham is like, it's amazing because Upham doesn't like conflict and he's in the middle of a freaking war zone. And he's like pleading yeah. with Miller, like, do you see what's happening? really you're going to let one of your guys shoot someone else. You need to do something about this. And Miller's just very calm. And, you know, finally the idea comes to him and he yells over to the sergeant. He says, Hey, what's the pool up on me now? (laughs) And And it just just, stops. Yeah. Everyone just stops because now all of a sudden this guy who like, they have a great rapport with him, but he's never divulged any of his own personal life to them. And now they're just totally fascinated. Yeah. So yeah. it's yeah, it's 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 really interesting. Well, so they they I guess to to jump forward just a little bit, they mm-hmm. they swing and they miss trying to find Private Ryan once. They they yep. link up with uh Ted Danson's uh crew from the 101st. They quickly find out that all the airborne jumps went to hell mm-hmm. and you've got all these hodgepodge units put together. So where they thought uh Private Ryan might have dropped in is not at all where he was. Right. And so they link up with, with him. We have the great scene. I, I just love Paul Giamatti's character. I think if he wasn't kind of hurt, maybe I would feel differently, but he's got that like <laughs> nagging leg injury. Yeah. He's like running around. Like, I feel like when I get a, when I'm exercising or whatever, and I have an acre of pain, I'm like him, I'm like, like an old woman. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, so they link up and he's, they're like, yeah, we've, we've got a private James Ryan. <laughs> you get one of the best scenes in the entire the movie. <laughs> and so he comes up and I, I think they're already like, okay, Ken Miller's like thought about this. And he's like, okay, well, and I hate to tell you this, but your brothers are dead and you're, you're going home. And he just has an absolute breakdown, understandably so. And you you look at it having seen the movie a couple times and you know he's just picturing his like grade school brothers all dead yeah and uh he's like oh, how did they die and he's like oh, they died in combat and he's like that can't be they're, they're in grade school <laughs> the best part of it is when miller's like we got the wrong guy and he's like are you sure are my brothers okay how can you be sure <laughs> like yeah they're fine <laughs> <laughs> But the whole time, uh, Ted Danson's character is just, you know, this this stoic officer. He's like holding them for support, and then they realize quickly what's happened, and he's like, "Okay, yeah, get off me." <laughs> so they they do finally end up um, coming across the unit that Ryan had just kind of married into um again from these scattered drops they you know soldiers we, we even saw it in band of brothers people just kind of 
glommed together with whoever they could find, even though even though it wasn't their unit. And uh, so as it turns out, they are in uh, this town of Ramel, which is a, a fictional, completely fictional location, does not exist. Uh, but the situation itself is is reasonably factual. Uh, bridges were an insanely important thing in World War II throughout Europe, uh, particularly across a lot of the larger rivers. And being able to hold these bridges, uh, or at least keep them out of enemy hands, so it was basically secure the bridge and hold it, or if the enemy's going to take it, blow it up, so they can't have it. And that's really the the situation that, that they were in here. And so, as it turns out, you know, they come across Ryan. They find out that he's with this group. Uh, they they divulge to him what their whole mission is about. And, um, you know, Ryan, Ryan has an incredible sense of duty. And, you know, while, while he... He's clearly trying to process what happened, and he really hadn't had that opportunity to grieve, but he's dealing with what's in front of him, and he's like, hey, look, there's only a handful of us here, and we were told to hold this bridge until reinforcements came. We know there's a shit ton of Germans that are out there, and they're going to come for us. I can't just leave these guys. And he essentially flat out refused to leave, which gave some cause for for Miller to say, okay, you know, we're going to stay and see your mission through. And then you're coming, then you're coming with us. Of course, the interesting situation here was that when Miller got there, he was the ranking officer. Yeah. They had nobody higher than a corporal, which is crazy. Yeah. So he took complete control of the situation and you see like, again, some of this great tactical ability that he has. And, and they talk about, okay, if, you know, if they're going to come in with armor, and these are the only weapons we have. We have to be able to funnel them in so we can deal very specifically with the armor. And, you know, we need firing positions here and there. We have the bridge situation that we're taking care of. Uh, we have our fallback position, uh, a.k.a. the Alamo. <laughs> and, you know, and it was a it was a really interesting operation. And then kind of leading up to the the actual German assault, you had a little bit of downtime. You have the soldiers kind of talking. There's this music in the background. You have some opportunity for Ryan and Miller to talk to each other. And you kind of start to see Ryan now going through at least the early stages of his grieving. And he, you know, he tells Miller, he's like, I can't see their faces. And Miller says, well, you have to, you can't just think of them. You have to put them in some kind of context. And then Ryan tells this story about like the, the day before they were all deployed where, um, they, one of the brothers was messing around with a girl in the barn and, you know, they went up and, 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 (laughs) uh, ended up, you know, messing with him. And she was apparently like, you know, what, what, what do you say? She, uh, fell out of the ugly tree and hit every stick on the way down or something. Yeah, they're they're trying to pop an intervention on it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so interestingly enough, one thing I found out when I was digging through some stuff on this, um, Matt Damon's whole story about him and his brothers, that was all improv. He just made that up on the spot and told it. And 
it, it actually it worked. It, interestingly enough, like when you watch it, it is very awkward. And they decided to keep it because it was so awkward. Yeah. You know, this is a it, it matched very well with a grieving guy just kind of trying to just put stuff out there and he just talked and this is the thing that came into his head and it was funny to him because he was there and Miller just like he kind of snickers at it a little bit just to kind of like play along but he didn't see as much of the humor because it was one of those you had to be there kind of things and but it just worked very well in the story yeah and then you lead off into the actual battle itself and it this is one of the the I, I think all time best action sequences. It it doesn't get the attention I think in the movie because you've got same probably Ryan is known for the D Day scene, mm-hmm. but this is just a phenomenal scene. Yeah. I mean, it's you've got light infantry mm-hmm. against German armor, and their whole point is they know that that the Germans are about to hit this bridge in force. Mm-hmm. Turns out they get a couple Panzer tanks and a couple Tiger tanks, which are the the biggest, baddest German tanks out there. Mm-hmm. In fact, you see certain, I think it's certain Horvath fire a couple of bazooka rounds that just bounce off yeah. the tiger. I mean, yeah. I, you know, this thing is incredibly strong and they're just trying to draw the, the German forces down the center of this town uh, to, to get into a fatal funnel, as you would call it. And, and really focus their firepower. And they, they don't have a lot. I mean, you see them, there's a great shot of, all of their supplies. It's a couple 30 cal machine guns. It's, uh, you know, some composition B grenades. Mm -hmm. They don't even have enough small arms ammunition to to keep up the fight. And you see that toward the end, they all start to run out of ammunition Mm -hmm. pretty fast. Um, meanwhile, Upham is put on ammo detail. He's going to be, I think you got to be Johnny on the spot with that ammo. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it's just a phenomenal scene. I mean, you see that the kind of, I think it. At no point do you feel that any character to include Private Ryan is safe during that fight. Yeah. Uh, there's that absolutely brutal scene where they finally take down the tiger with these like improvised sticky bombs. Mm-hmm. You know, another testament to Captain Miller's tactical prowess. Yeah. And they're up on the tank, and the Germans roll up an anti-aircraft gun and just absolutely obliterate all the soldiers that are yeah. on top of that tank. And that's um, brutal. It's like, holy shit, you know, all this effort and one gun rolls up and they just kill, you know, six guys. That's in the like blink of an heartbreaking. Eye. Yeah. And you see that, that these tanks, they don't have the, the means or the ability to, to properly combat these tanks. You see one, American soldier, the first one to light a sticky bomb, it actually blows up mm-hmm. and blows him up. Uh, just absolutely obliterates him. And Which is really that, messy in the film. I mean, like, you just yeah. see parts of soldier just, like, fly all over the place. I mean, that was just, ugh. When, you know, at one point, they're finally, I, I, Miller is out of rounds, as is Ryan, and except for sidearms, and uh, Ryan quickly points out that they can prime mortar rounds and just chuck them. And so Captain Miller, he's priming them and Captain Miller is just heaving them yeah. at German soldiers in desperation before they fall back to the Alamo. And there's that great, great shot of the, uh, the tiger coming up over oh my gosh. their emplacement. And you just see, I mean, the, watch this movie with the sound turned up if you have the ability oh, yeah. to. 
crank it up. I like just you can feel these tanks, and it just comes right over the berm. Uh, it it's just incredible, yeah. top to bottom. That scene's phenomenal, and I, equally as gut wrenching when they finally fall back to the Alamo, and, and it's just absolute desperation mode. Yeah. And I mean, you just see this incredible effort by everyone and everyone kind of with, with the exception of Upham and, and we'll talk about him in a moment, but like everyone has their very specific role that they play in this planet and everyone executes very, very well. I you know, Jackson's up in the, in the clock tower and he's doing his sniper thing and he's just ripping off rounds and, you know, aside from one guy who he had to fire, you know, a couple, three rounds at, it's like he was getting everyone. And, you know, they're using Molotov cocktails to hit the, um, the, 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 the backs of the, the crews and the panzers because they're open top and, you know, the sticky bomb thing. And like everything was coming together real well until that, uh, that, uh, uh, large caliber gun was, was brought in by the Germans. And that really just, I mean, that was, I think the one thing that truly just fucked up the whole operation for them. Yeah, they finally it destroyed came, it. Yeah, they, but, it was but it came in on their flank, late. and it was just a total surprise to them. Yeah. Um, I mean, otherwise, they were dealing with the infantry reasonably well. They were struggling some with the tanks, but they were making it happen. And and really, their goal wasn't necessarily to destroy all the tanks. It was to to create a roadblock. You know, you take mm-hmm. out the first two or three tanks that come down the road— and you just stop the rest of them. There's no way those others are going to get down that road. So it, it just, it, you know, that that was a significant issue. But then you have Upham, who his fear really locked in. I mean, he he froze up in combat, and that really costs. That resulted in a lot of other guys losing their lives. Um, you know, these guys were running out of ammunition with the MG and he didn't get the ammo up to him. He was responsible for that. And, uh, you know, that MG was one of the strongest positions that they held. And once they lost ammo in it, you know, kind of all, you know, all was lost there. Yeah, I, that that's pr- probably second to Wade's death. He's up on his standing in the stairwell there, just absolutely frozen with fear mm-hmm. as the uh, the German soldier kills one of the, the, the machine gunner. I, he, he was in the unit. I forget the actor's name, yeah. but he's been in quite a bit of stuff. But Mellish is up there with him, the Jewish soldier in the squad. Mm-hmm. And they end up in hand-to-hand combat, and Mellish has his own knife turned on him in what is probably one of the Oof. most brutal scenes in any movie, oh, yeah. war movie or not. And up him here's all of this happening and then you see there's that that shot of the german soldier that's uh fresh off killing both of them just look at him and up him just takes his hand off his trigger and the german just walks by yeah and you know up him maybe like the mo- one of the most hated uh, <laughs> characters in any war movie i don't <laughs> I don't know if there's a definitive ranking but he's definitely top 5 yeah yeah i mean his um it's certainly his actions or, or, or inaction in in this particular scene uh, 
again, just caused the deaths of, of a lot of his, uh, a lot of the other soldiers that, that were there with him. And he sort of redeems himself because he does shoot. We, we mentioned you see Steamboat Willie mm-hmm. put the fatal round into Captain Miller and drop him on the bridge as he's he's going over to retrieve the detonator. Yeah. To get ready to blow it. Well, one of the and things you... in this, which is how the scene plays out, is is kind of funny uh, when Horvath gets shot. Uh, the, the the German soldier comes up to him, fires on him, or uh, they, they you know they fire on each other. Horvath has his his pistol out. They fire on each other, and then they eventually run out of ammunition. Horvath throws his pistol at the other guy, uh, but you know the, the the damage had been done. He took around you know through his kidney or something, uh, and ends up bleeding out a few minutes later. But it's just it, the 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 whole exchange in that is 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 a little bit humorous. I mean, despite obviously they the throw their helmets at each other. Yeah, yeah. Throws his handgun. <laughs> they throw a helmet at each other. Yeah, that's it's. Uh, but so then they all end up falling back to to the Alamo. Miller ends up getting his bell rung by a um, by one of the shots from from a tank, and eventually, when he recovers, he sees the the trigger out there for the detonating device for the bridge, and he kind of crawls out onto the um, onto the bridge after it, and he simply can't reach it. And uh, as a tiger's crossing the bridge, he pulls his handgun and he starts plinking away at the tiger and then all of a sudden this is one of the best scenes in the movie i mean it's just oh yeah i mean like it it you know clear desperation it's a david goliath type of thing you know miller is is in his final heartbeat and just you know boom 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 with his handgun and then all of a sudden the tank explodes and you're like what the fuck just happened <laughs> uh and and then you know you had a uh a P31 Mustang allied aircraft uh a fighter bomber you know fly flying over they uh, uh dropped a bomb on the tank and blew it up so and then uh you know the reinforcements come in but largely too late for most of the squad uh Miller kicks it uh, the sergeant died. I think Ryben might be the only one that survives. I, I think so. Yeah. Um, him and, and, and obviously, uh, private Ryan. Right. And there's that iconic line where Miller holds him close as he's about to die. And he says, earn it. Mm-hmm. And it's just so poignant. And then it ties right to the end of the movie where it, it flashes back forward in time. And old man, Private Ryan, is at Miller's grave and kind of very tearfully says, you know, I hope I've I've earned it. I, I've done my best to lead a good life. And mm-hmm. it's clear that he hasn't told his wife anything about any of this stuff. And he's, you know, he's asking her for uh, support and validation in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a pretty heart-wrenching thing is he's kind of reliving that whole experience while he's there in Normandy. He's got his whole family with him. And, um, yeah, I, I think him asking, kind of trying to get that reassurance from his wife is just a, it's, it's a nice closing piece to this movie. 
yeah, overall, this this movie is just it's there's so many ups and downs with this movie emotionally to watch it. It's it truly is epic. Um, it's it's just a hell of a movie. So uh, for folks who have been listening to us, you know that we we do cover a, a bit of uh, military lingo here, if you might not be familiar. And, and this movie throws a fair amount of things at you. Um, Tom, you want to run through some of the some of the things we hear? Yeah, we just have a few. Private Ryben's weapon of choice is the BAR, the BAR, the, the Browning Automatic Rifle. That's a uh, It was a pretty common weapon in World War II. Uh, high caliber, sort of a light machine gun, fires a .30-06, or I guess the modern-day version of it would be a uh, uh, .762. But uh, large caliber, had a, for something that was supposed to be a machine gun, had a relatively small magazine uh, yeah. for what it was. Uh, but my favorite scene with it is where Ryman is at the runs up to the sand dune and he doesn't have it. And Horvath is like, where's your weapon? He's like, oh, it's in the bottom of the channel. He's like, well, go find another one. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Bangalore torpedoes to, to actually dovetail right off that that scene on the sand dune. The thing that helps them bust through are Bangalores. You hear Captain Miller say, bring up some Bangalores. Those are actually... Uh, explosive charges that are actually that are connected in tubes. Mm-hmm. It can be one, it can be several connected, and you see them uh, have several. They sort of throw it over this the the dune to blow it up and blow up the obstacle. Those things are still used today. They're used by engineers uh, most typically to clear obstacles uh, rather than having to go around them and potentially take fire. Fubar is probably the most famous military term that's hmm. used. In this movie, you get an explanation of it. That's why I said if you watch it on TNT, you probably won't get the full explanation. <laughs> but it's as Private uh, Upham gets told toward the end of the movie, it's fucked up beyond all recognition. Mm-hmm. So if if you're in a situation that's just ass backwards, <laughs> things just aren't right, uh, just a general term for something being completely messed up, FUBAR is your go-to. Fubar. Uh, and if if you're around children, you could just tell them it's a German word, like they tell them. <laughs> and he even looked it up in the German English yeah, he's dictionary. Like, I can't find this in the German dictionary anyway. <laughs> and then lastly, Comp B. Comp B is one of the explosives that they actually had a lot of at Rommel. Uh, they uh, they had that in TNT that they used as part of the sticky bombs and to, mm-hmm. to wire the bridge. Comp B just short for composition B it's it's an explosive that's actually very very common in artillery rockets uh hand grenades all sorts of stuff it's a mixture of uh explosive TNT and RDX and uh very very capable explosive still used today mm-hmm. uh, it's also shapeable yep and that's military lingo for saving private ryan cool it's almost all weapons based. I like it. <laughs> some uh, some quick kind of stuff like behind the scenes cinema kind of things uh, that I thought were worthwhile mentioning as we close out here. Uh, the movie had a budget of about seventy million dollars. The D Day sequence alone cost them twelve million, and that was filmed over a period of about four weeks, basically day by day, and each day was a small advancement on the beach. And that's essentially what they did. And Spielberg, who is kind of famous for very heavily storyboarding a lot of scenes in his movies, 
did not storyboard the D-Day sequence at all. He wanted things to evolve kind of naturally as they shot them and to be inspired by this as he watched it unfold. And, And he, he was also inspired by, you know, watching some of the old cinema reels that actually existed from the invasion. And it's just like crazy to think that in the midst of the D-Day invasion, there were actually like camera people, cameramen that were out there filming this stuff. Like while people are getting butchered all around them, um, they're filming this like it was crazy. So some of that footage actually exists. And that's what a lot of the look and feel of this, even when you watch it, you'll notice like some of the colors are a little bit different. He wanted to, to tone things down to make it look almost period and, and kind of authentic. Uh, the movie made uh, $30.5 and a half million in its opening weekend domestically. Overall, it grossed $216.5 million domestically, uh, with a full global take of $482 million. Which is impressive for an R-rated movie. Yeah. Yeah, it, it Particularly it really a, a war movie. Yeah. I mean, you don't see a lot of... You're not going to find... I don't know that any war movies are in the your top 25, like highest grossing films. So for it to have that kind of success is a testament to its quality. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's a it's a big deal. This is also the last um, traditionally edited film to win an Oscar for editing. Um, and mm. what I mean in terms of traditionally edited, this is them, you know, they cut film and they glue it back together. This was no digital editing that took place in this. And when you consider that this was an almost three hour long movie and particularly when you had a month of filming just of the D-Day sequence, there was a lot of editing that was done. Uh, that's a ridiculous amount of editing. So, uh, let's see. I mentioned earlier that this was kind of somewhat loosely based on a true story. And that story is of the Nyland brothers which were four siblings who did serve in the army during World War II. Three of the brothers were thought to be dead, uh, resulting in the fourth brother, Fritz, being sent home. Uh, Later on, Edward, uh, one of those brothers, uh, was found alive after escaping from a POW camp in Burma. So there was obviously some inspiration based on this, but that's pretty much as far as as, as that takeoff went. So... Uh, that's pretty much it. Tom, any final thoughts before we do our, our close out here? I, this movie was an emotional gut punch. I, when I don't think this has ever been a, like a popcorn flick war movie mm. in any of the times that I've watched it. But, um, if you, if you haven't, I hope you're listening to this, having seen it, if you've seen it for the first time, I hope you make it part of your regular rotation. I, I tend to watch it every D day. Mm. Uh, just a good time to, to put it on but uh this has been a good start i i like this i'm looking forward to the the next film we tackle yeah and uh speaking of which the next film we do there's a great transition tom nice job uh, <laughs> not set up at all. <laughs> is uh is going to be black hawk down so we're we're going to kind of leave world war ii behind for a brief bit um i think both of us do tend to gravitate to a lot of world war ii movies so we we won't be gone for long uh, we are, we're, but we're going to hit something a little bit more contemporary. Um, doing Black Hawk Down, which is a favorite movie of both of ours. It has an incredible cast. It has a great story. It is uh, is based on true events. 
and and it's just it's the movie is is near perfection. Um, it's like a top ten movie to me, maybe top five. I mean, it's it's that good. Yeah, absolutely. Good. So, folks, uh, thank you again for listening. We certainly appreciate any feedback you might have from us. Uh, you can do so by sending us an email to dispatches at randomchatter.com. That will come to uh, to both Tom and I. You can also find us, um, uh, if you're, you're part of our Discord community, you can hit us up in the Dispatches from the Front uh, Discord channel. You can also find us online elsewhere. On Twitter, if you're on there, and I encourage you to, to get on there if you're not and interact with us. I love hearing from folks that enjoy this sort of stuff. You can find us at Random Chatter. Tim, where can they find you? Uh, at Qui-Gon Tim. That's Tim with two M's. You can find me at the very creatively named at Thomas L. L is in Larry Harper. And you can find all of our shows at randomchatter.com. Nicely and neatly organized. That's right. Uh Let's see. We certainly appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us. Tell your friends, family members, coworkers, uh, even total strangers, and, and anyone you know uh, who happens to uh, like war movies. Um, again, we're, we're hitting multiple time periods as we, we kind of jump up to Black Hawk Down. Um, we hope that we provide some good, insightful discussion uh, on a lot of these things. So please let folks know. You can also um, help us out by kind of spreading the word uh, by way of uh, reviews, iTunes, Google Play, wherever it is that you get your podcast from. Uh, please take a moment not to just click on all the stars, but to write in a sentence or two about why you happen to like us and the stuff that we do. Um, we also appreciate some financial contribution. We are one of many podcasts, over a dozen podcasts that are uh, in on the Random Chatter Network. And uh, we are a, a we are actually an established organization uh, as a not for profit, and we have bills to pay. Uh, and so we appreciate contributions that come at us. You can do so by going to randomchatter.com/patreon, and uh, they will give you the give you the instructions there. Even just a dollar a month is a huge help. And um, for every contribution you make to us, we also give back to you. Uh, one of those those givebacks is um, uh, gaining full access to our Discord community, which is like this whole series of uh, online chat rooms. And we talk about all of our different shows and a variety of other topics across pop culture and such. And I know that any positive reviews we get are all because of this next part. Everybody's favorite part in all these episodes, which is <laughs> my disclaimer. And I see that you've you've tailored it uh, away from our Band of Brothers one, Tim. So I have. This is brand this, new. This folks. feels this feels very special. It's it's nice and shiny. <laughs> Dispatchers from the front is not endorsed by anyone affiliated with the films we discuss, and is intended for entertainment purposes only. Take that, HBO. That's right. <laughs> All names associated with and references to the films we discuss are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and copyright holders. Random Chatter Media and Dispatches from the Front are not affiliated with those trademark or copyright holders. Although, Tom Hanks, if you are listening, I'd be happy to, to – I, I would sweep the floor at, uh, on one of your films uh, <laughs> if that's what it took. Um, but all original content of Dispatches from the Front is the intellectual property of Random Chatter Media unless otherwise indicated. And there it is. Our very exciting disclaimer. Thank you once again, Tom, for joining me to talk <laughs> – about uh, things that we enjoy 
And folks, we will see you back in a few weeks as we talk about Black Hawk Down. So go find it, watch it, enjoy it, and then kind of dissect it along with us. Take care. See you then.